First uh, Corinthians 4, 1 to 21. So in 2010, um, I, was, I had a chance to be a part of a large missions conference in Cape Town called the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization, and uh, where 4,000 missionaries from 198 countries attended. So I was not distinguished enough to get invited to the conference, so I snuck in as a volunteer. Uh, and uh, most of the volunteers were actually, uh, they're, they're all pastors and missionaries as well. And uh, one evening at the conference, there was a bit of a stir because of one Ang- Anglican bishop that was there who refused to sit down. And his reason for not sitting down was that he is a bishop, uh, but he was given the same chair as everybody else in the conference. He thought as a bishop, he should have a better seat, uh, something that reflects his station as a bishop. At that moment, the volunteer who was attending to him uh, had the presence of mind uh, to get on his hands and feet and offer to him, you can sit on me if you want. And uh, so the bishop was ashamed uh, and by his bold confrontation and gesture of humility uh, and decided that, okay, I'll just sit on the regular chair after all. Uh, Sometimes I think Christians uh, think that now that we are children of the king, uh, because we are create the we are adopted children of the creator of the universe that our life should be one of ease and comfort and glory even though we claim to be the follower of a crucified lord instead of the cross we want a crown instead of faithfulness to god we seek success in this world instead of serving others we want to lord it over others and instead of glorifying christ we like to glorify ourselves the corinthian church was experiencing a similar struggle So Paul teaches in this passage that the life and ministry of a Christian should reflect the suffering servanthood of Jesus Christ. First, Paul, to that end, offers two examples uh, from his life and the life of other apostles of suffering servanthood of Christ. And then he exhorts the Corinthian believers to imitate him. So that would be my outline. The first point is in verses 1 to 5, example of servanthood. Second point in verses 6 to 13, example of suffering. And the last point in verses 14 to 21 is the exhortation to imitate. Paul concluded the previous passage uh, by saying in chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So the church does not belong in any way to Paul or Apollos or Cephas or any other leader of the church. Rather, they belong to the church and the church to Christ and Christ to God. But then after having said this, Paul now sets forth the proper way in which the church, the Corinthians, can can properly perceive of the leaders of the church. He says this in verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul already used the word servant uh, in the preceding chapters to describe himself and Apollos in chapter 3, verse 5. But the Greek word that's translated here as servant is actually a different word here in chapter 4, verse 1. It still means servant, but with a different nuance. So the word that was used earlier in chapter 3 highlights the servant's role as an intermediary between two people, two parties, as someone who has kind of a, is a minister, who is, someone, is an agent that represents someone. Uh, But here, the word servant in in chapter 4, verse 1, means helper or assistant, and it highlights the accountability of that person to his own master. 
right? So it, it refers to someone who has been uh, given a duty, he's been charged with something, he's, he's supposed to discharge that duty without any personal prejudice because he's accountable entirely to his master, his owner, his Lord. And so that meaning is highlighted by the second word that Paul uses also, it's stewards, right? A steward in this uh, cultural context was usually a slave, uh, a slave that was entrusted by a manager of, of managing, uh, by the master of managing the household. So he didn't own anything in the house. He simply stewarded it. And he functioned with delegated authority from the master and was accountable to the master. So again, the same concept of accountability to the master is in view here. And the mysteries of God that Paul says he's a steward of is, is the gospel that he mentioned, chapter 2, verse 7, which he called the secret and hidden wisdom of God. It refers to God's salvation plan, which was hidden in the previous ages, but was revealed if ultimately, once and for all, through Jesus Christ. And he saw himself and the other apostles as stewards of this gospel, servants accountable to God. With, they had to safeguard it, transfer it, and they had, were subjected to and accountable to Christ in that regard. And due to this nature of servant and steward, as someone who is under another person's authority, Paul says in verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The stewards must be found faithful, which can also be translated trustworthy. They have to be worthy of their entrustment. They have to validate the trust that the master has placed on them by faithfully discharging their duties. And that means it doesn't matter how successful these stewards look to those outside looking in. What matters is that they are faithful to the master who has entrusted this to them. And so Paul highlights that it's only the judgment of and the verdict of his master that concerns him in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Right? This verse confirms our suspicion up to this point that the Corinthian believers have been judging Paul and have been examining him. Uh, and so they are acting like they're the grand jury uh, and that ought to determine whether Paul is up to snuff or not. So Paul, Paul tells them, your judgment is inconsequential. So quit your self-important critique of my apostleship and ministry. With me, it is a very small thing, he says, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. And notice it's not just their judgment that he's saying is inconsequential. He says the judgment of any human court is inconsequential. So the expression human court uh, in the Greek is literally human day. Uh, and, uh, and it's similar to the English idiom, having one's day in court. You guys have probably heard of that, right? So it refers to a day of judgment in the human court. By using that expression, Paul's intentionally contrasting this human day with the day that he mentioned earlier in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. He's saying, he said there that now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So Paul doesn't care about any human day because his hope is set on the day of God's judgment. That's why he's able to say, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. But Paul doesn't stop there. Uh, he goes one step further. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. This offers us a revolutionary insight into Paul's humility. Because when people judge us and criticize us, uh, our instinct is to respond in one of two ways. And one way is to make too much of other people's judgments and criticism and then beat ourselves up, right? So we say, it's all my fault. I'm stupid, 
and incompetent. Right? Or we can go the other way. We discount others' criticisms and make too much of our own judgments about ourselves. We say, there's nothing wrong with me at all. My critics are unfair and biased, and they would do far worse than I do under my circumstances. And, uh, but Paul says he does neither of these things. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He made much of neither others' judgment nor his own judgment because he was holding out for God's judgment. He escapes that vicious cycle of peer judgment and self-judgment by reserving himself for God's ultimate judgment. Now, but by this, Paul's not saying that he doesn't ever examine his own life and ministry. Of course he does, and that's why he adds in verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul has examined his life and ministry and has a clear conscience, which is a testament to his maturity in the Lord, because I certainly can't say that for myself. So he's saying that I've examined myself. He's grown to a point where he actually has a clear conscience about his life and ministry. Nevertheless, he insists that he doesn't, that that does not mean that he is acquitted because it's the Lord who judges him. Paul knows that he is neither objective nor omniscient when it comes to judging himself and his life and ministry. So he suspends judgment and waits for the Lord's judgment, which is perfectly right and just. And it's standard legal practice if you think about it, right? So if, if a judge is personally implicated in a case, it's standard legal practice for the judge to recuse himself, Right? But when it comes to ourselves, we are often delusional. We think that we can be an accurate judge of ourselves. We think that we can fairly and accurately judge our own life and ministry. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you living today in fear of people's judgments? Do you find yourself often passing judgment on yourself or on others? Because when you have your day in court It doesn't matter whether you have a thousand critics or a thousand supporters. It doesn't matter that unknown millions of people have have judged you in the court of public opinion. It doesn't matter how many witnesses you have testifying on your behalf in the stands because their opinion counts for nothing. And when you have your day in court, it doesn't matter how vehemently you protest your own innocence. It doesn't matter how compelling your own defense is. Your opinion counts for nothing in court. What counts is what the judge says. What counts is his verdict. So why be so exercised over judgment? So why, whether it's by others or yourself, like why, why did we as God's servant have to curry favor with other people, as other humans, as if they were our master? So then I want to encourage you this morning, step outside of the court of human opinions and judgments and entrust yourself completely to the sovereign God who knows everything, sees everything. It's his verdict that counts. He is our master, he's our judge, and he is our God. In this book, uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes about what this kind of humility and servanthood would actually look like. He writes, quote, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. 
he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. In Paul's words, I do not even judge myself. People who possess true Christian humility like this live with a sense of freedom and self-forgetfulness. They are able to rejoice in other successes without getting envious, and they enjoy their own successes without getting puffed up. They can receive criticisms from others without being defensive and dismissive on the one hand or depressed and dejected on the other. They can offer constructive criticisms to others with love and humility rather than anger and pride because they subject all human judgments, including their own, to the ultimate judgment of God. This is what Christian servanthood looks like. And since Paul is ultimately accountable to Christ and not to the Corinthians, Paul warns the Corinthian believers against judging him, as judging the servants of Christ. So he says in verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Right? This is continuing that line of thought that we saw in chapter 3, where uh, Paul told us that we cannot in any ultimate, final sense, judge uh, the quality of our Christian labor, because only the day of judgment will re- reveal the true quality of our neighbor. So following that line of thought, Paul's arguing here that the Corinthians are judging and dismissing him, uh, his teaching as immature in a premature way. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't judge in any way uh, and for form any kinds of judgments, because just in the immediately next, next chapter, Paul speaks of the need for the Corinthian church to discipline a sexually immoral brother. Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Right? So he says we need to judge. And in chapter 6, verse 5, Paul encourages believers to settle disputes among Christians themselves instead of suing each other. So it is necessary for the church as the body of Christ to form certain judgments at appropriate times. But when they do, it has to be off, they have to render appropriate judgment according to God's verdict. It has to be in accordance with God's word, not their own judgments as the Corinthians were doing. The kind of judgment that Paul's forbidding here is different altogether because the Corinthians were judging Paul not by God's standard, but by the standards of worldly wisdom. And they were doing so prematurely, and that's why Paul's saying your judgment is inconsequential. So instead of the, their divisive boasting in certain church leaders and their, uh, their uh, criticism of Paul, Paul offers a counterexample of Christ-like servanthood. That's the first point. And then having offered the example of Christ-like servanthood, uh, Paul also offers in verses 6 to 13 an example of Christ-like suffering. He says the life, because the life and ministry of a Christian should reflect the suffering servanthood of Christ. In verse 6, which is a transition from a previous paragraph, he says this, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Everything that Paul has said up to this point about servanthood from chapter 3, verse 5, to chapter 4, verse 5, Paul's saying that he has applied to and to Apollos for their benefit. And Paul gives two parallel purposes for why he did this, and the two are related, explain explain each other. So look at the rest of verse 6. It says, That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. The first clause says, That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. The phrase, that phrase is preceded by a definite article uh, in the Greek, 
uh, which means if you were to translate it literally, it would, read the fra- it would read that you may learn by us the not beyond what is written. Right? That doesn't really make sense as you think about it, right? So the, that's the standard way in which quotations are introduced in the Greek. So that's why the NIV, if you have the NIV translation in your hand, in verse 6, it says it this way. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Right? So Paul seems to be quoting a saying, a maxim here. And he says, not beyond what is written. So it's likely similar to English idioms that we use, such as stick to the script or stay within the lines or keep within bounds, right? So he's saying, right, the the saying means to keep within the bounds of something. But what does Paul mean by what is written? The verb write occurs in its passive perfect form, it is written, or it has written, 10 times throughout 1 Corinthians, and every single time it precedes a direct quotation of Scripture. So I think it's safe to assume when Paul says, do not go beyond what is written, he means don't go beyond what is written in Scripture, and, and he cited several uh, Old Testament scripture up to this point, and, and one that may be most uh, relevant for this uh, is Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, which he cited in chapter 131. It says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. So these verses uh, from Jeremiah will be alluded to again in, the, in this passage, actually. So it's possible that this specific passage is something that Paul has in mind as he's writing this. and saying, don't go beyond what is written in Scripture, because the Corinthians were boasting in people instead of in God. And that would make good sense of the second purpose that he gives in verse 6, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, right? By not going beyond what is written, that's what he means, uh, that they would not boast in other people, instead boast in God. And the language of being puffed up is so uh, great because it's, uh, it conjures up an image of literally like a bloated belly, right? Or someone who is so prideful that he- their head's just swelling up like a balloon, right? That's, what, that's the image that he has, puffed up, right? So it's, uh, and so they're saying, when you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and boast in that way, Paul's saying, you're just being puffed up. You're just full of hot air. Right? And, uh, and then in verse 7, Paul gives the reason why the Corinthians' boasting is out of place. And he writes, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Greek word that is translated here as see anything different means to discern or to distinguish, right? And it's a cognate of the word that's translated judge earlier. So Paul is basically doing a little word play here to get back at them. And he's saying, for who, you're pronouncing judgment on me before my time, but he's saying, but who sees anything different in you? Who judges you any differently, right? And I'm just a servant who is stewarding uh, God's, the, an entrustment from God, and you are no different, is what Paul is saying. So if you were to put it in colloquial English, he's saying, like, who do you think you are? I mean, that's what he's saying. I mean, don't, why are you judging? Like, who judges you any differently? Who do you think you are? And then Paul continues in the rest of verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
all that they have, every single one of their spiritual endowments, they have received freely from God in accordance with God's grace instead of their merit or deserving. So if that's the case, then why are they acting like they earned it and as if they deserve some credit for it? They're acting like, like a child, right, who just received, like his brother won uh, a match in track and field race or something like that and got a gold medal and he gave it to his younger brother as a gift and then he turns around to his friends and says, hey, look, look at this. And it's, and it's like, I know, I don't look kind of fast, but I'm pretty fast, right? I mean, it's like you're boasting at, at, with the gift that you received as if you earned it yourself, right? Or like a teenager that has rich parents that just bought him a brand new car and he drives around like he owns all the money in the world, right? I mean, it's, I mean that's, it's vain. It's puffed up. That's what he's saying. Why? What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. So why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All the spiritual gifts we have, all the spiritual life we have in us, every single one of it is a gift that highlights the generosity of the giver. So why do we make it a ground for our own boasting? We're just recipients of that gift. And the Corinthians believers possessed many gifts, as we see uh, in the following chapters. And they saw those gifts as evidence of their spiritual arrival, as I mentioned before. And they thought of themselves as so mature and so spiritual that they were throwing off of their shoulders even the authority of the Apostle Paul. And so in a series of Short sentences, Paul offers some examples of the Corinthians' inappropriate boasting in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Right? The repetition of the word already highlights the Corinthians' theological error. Right? According to Scripture, uh, the kingdom of God, right, the reign of God, uh, which uh, which uh, refers to uh, uh, the kingdom of God, refers to the reign of God, the rule of God, is uh, already here but not yet, right? And uh, it's already here but it's not yet consummated. So that's why Jesus says in John five twenty five, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Right? And when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. Right? That hour is both already here on the one hand, but it's still coming. So it's here, but it's not fully consummated. And so with the, it's kind of like with the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, it's as if the hourglass of the last days has been turned. And so the sand is trickling down, and the definite, it's definitely coming. It's imminent, but it's, so it's already here in a real sense because that hourglass has been turned, but it has not been consummated. There's still sand left in the hourglass. That's basically kind of the consistent biblical teaching about the end times. And that's why the Bible sees even the time of the apostle, every, all the ages subsequent to Christ as the last days. And so some Christians mistakenly think that, that only the not yet part of this is true. And the not yet aspect of the kingdom of God is true. People who think that way believe that the new age of Christ's reign is not yet here. And because of that, they believe that they don't participate in that reign and that they believe that that's all lying in the future and therefore that the power of God's spirit is not available to them for spiritual growth and victory. So the Christians that live with this not yet mentality uh, have t- think that Christ live as if Christ's coming made no real spiritual difference to how they live here and now. And it's only the second coming that will come uh, that will solve all their problems. So they tend to live with the defeatist uh, victim mentality, right? They have, believe that they have no power to overcome sin or to change uh, this world. And Christians, on the other hand, 
uh, like the Corinthians, mistakenly believe that only the already aspect of the kingdom of God is true, that it's all here. And they believe that the new age of Christ's reign is already consummated, and because of that, they believe they have everything already with nothing left to get in Christ's second coming. So already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And they live with the triumphalistic mentality. So if, as if everything is within their powers to do everything that they need to do in this world and in their lives. And in order to correct that error, Paul now uses his own life and the life of other apostles as an example of suffering to show that the Christians do not, in fact, have all that they want yet. They do, in a real way, reign with Christ now, but that reign has not yet been consummated. And so he says this in verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Right? In the Roman uh, gladiatorial games, uh, right, the, the finale of the, of the show uh, was uh, when the captive slaves were condemned to death or were released, loose to fight to their death, or if they had mar- people that they were going to kill, execute, to give them over to the beast. That was the finale of the gladiatorial games. And so they are, Paul is describing himself in that way. They are the last of all, like men sentenced to death, a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. That's a striking contrast, right, to the Corinthians' posture. They were acting like kings. The apostles, however, are like slaves condemned to death. Paul continues in verse 10, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Right? The, he's alluding once again here to Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, which said the wise should not boast in their wisdom, the strong not boast in their strength, and the rich not boast in their riches, but instead in the Lord. But the Corinthians are boasting in exactly those things. They're saying in boasting in their wisdom, boasting in their riches, boasting in uh, their honor. And, and the way Paul uh, describes himself uh, is exactly in contrast to this because the Corinthian believers are kind of drunk on their theology of glory and Paul's trying to sober them up with the good dose of the theology of the cross. He says in verses 11 to 13, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse, the refuse of all things. And so he, he's, uh, I don't know if you are able to catch it in that, in that brief reading, but he's directly point for point contrasting his lifestyle with the lifestyle and the boasting of the Corinthians. Because they were saying uh, to themselves, right, that they already had all they want, and then Paul insists that he is hungry and thirsty, right? The Corinthians were boasting that they already had become rich, but Paul says that he is still poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and working with his own hands. But the Corinthians believed that they had already become kings, and then Paul insists that he and the other Pauls are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And Paul's intentionally using very degrading terms to describe himself and the other apostles, right? The word scum and refuse, I mean, they're, they're very accurate uh, translations because they are off-scourings. You guys know what I mean when I say that? So it's like when you clean your carpet, right? If you have a carpet cleaner, it's amazing the things that come up after uh, you go through your house. Like you're like, oh, I cannot believe I'm living in this, right? And, then the, and so all that accumulated filth and dirt that you have to pour out that's scum right 
Uh, or when you clean all the gunk off your dishes, or when you're trying to scrub the grime off your bathtub, that's, that's scum. That's what Paul's saying. That's scum. I'm, we're scum. We're treated like that. The Paul, and, and he says, yeah, refuse. It's garbage. They're treated like garbage. They're tr- like trash in this world. That's how the great apostle Paul describes himself, his position in this world. We have become and are still like the scum of the world the refuse of all things. And as such, he says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And you could just hear the Apostle Paul's heartbeat in that verse when he says that because that's exactly how Paul's currently, presently in his writing, responding to the Corinthians. Because they reviled him, but he's blessing them. Right? They persecuted him, but he's enduring them. And they slandered him, but he's entreating them. And so he continues his entreaty in verses 14, 21. And that brings me to my third point, the exhortation to imitate. The examples of servanthood and suffering that Paul just laid out, he now exhorts them to imitate. Uh, And he says in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He switches his metaphors once again and exhorts them as their spiritual father. Right? In uh, verses 15 to 16, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Because the members of the Corinthian church came to faith in, in Christ through Paul's ministry, he claims to be their spiritual father. And the word guides or uh, guardians uh, in Greco-Roman culture was also typically a slave that was in charge of basically taking the children back and forth to school, uh, basically in charge of the kids while the father was not there, uh, what present with them. And so he's saying that you have many guides and guardians like this. In fact, you have thousands of guides, is the literal translation, but he says you only have one father the one who founded this church and brought them to the Lord in the first place. So he's here finally reasserting his own authority as the founding apostle of, of the Corinthian church, which because they've been challenging his authority up to this point. And then he leverages that metaphor to urge them to be imitators of him, right? I mean, in the ancient world, uh, the children were encouraged to follow in the footsteps of their parents, uh, their fathers in particular. And you still see a trace of this in a lot of uh, people's last names, right? And I think, uh, example, some of the people have the last name Baker, right? That means their ancestors were bakers. Or if you're a smith, you're, you're a silversmith or coppersmith. And, uh, or if your last name is Bauer, that's a German word for a peasant or a farmer. So your ancestors were farmers. In the ancient world, right, they were expected to follow in their footsteps, right, to do those things. Or in a more kind of basic, simple way, right? I mean, we expect children to be like their parents, right? Like father, like son, right? If you have you really good-looking parents, like you're not going to get an ugly child all of a sudden, right? I and mean, if you have really intelligent parents, you expect your child to be intelligent, right? It's a, people that expect their children to behave like their parents. So Paul's using the same logic, and he tells them as their spiritual father, you should be characterized by servanthood and suffering because that's what my life looks like. And I am your spiritual father. And because Paul himself could not be present with them, he says he sent Timothy for that purpose in verse 17. That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 
Like earlier, Paul described the need for the stewards of the mysteries of Christ to be faithful. And Paul here describes Timothy as faithful. And I think Paul's concerned here that because the Corinthians were judging him and dismissing him, that they would receive Timothy coldly. Um, And so he says, no, receive him warmly because he is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Uh, And he tells them that when he comes, Timothy knows the ways of Christ and that he will show them that because that's the same way he's taught them in every church that he's been. And imitation kind of uh, makes us a little uncomfortable. I think because we have uh, notions of humility where like, oh, if you're humble, you should never boast about anything. You should not be good at anything. I mean, that's the kind of false humility, right? But if you have a proper sense of humility that we are talking about Christian humility, I think there is a place where imitation is, is good and it should be commended. In fact, it's an essential part of Christian discipleship is to, because we, when we hang out with people, uh, certain people, we tend to act, act more like them, to talk more like them. And that's an essential part of Christian discipleship. And so Paul urges believers to imitate him in many of his letters. And he will do it again later in this letter in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that puts a weighty responsibility on all of us, doesn't it? Because we have to live in a manner worthy of our calling and be examples to those around us. I mean, that puts the pressure on the teacher if, if, you, if you have to tell people to imitate them, right? And this is one of the reasons why being a member of the church, being in a regular Christian community is so important because there are things you can't learn from just reading a book that you have to learn from observing the lives of people. And more mature believers among us need to say to younger believers among us, come, watch me. I'll show you how to study the Bible. Come, watch me, and I'll show you how to pray. Come, watch me, and I'll show you how to serve your wife and family. Come, watch me, and I'll show you how to respect and serve your husband. Come, watch me, and I'll show you how to share the gospel with an unbeliever. And then Paul turns his attention more specifically to the instigators of this problem in the Corinthian church who arrogantly rejected his apostleship. He writes to them in verses 18 to 19, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. So some of the Corinthians were uh, boasting and criticizing Paul as if Paul would never come back to correct them. And Paul maintains that he is definitely planning on visiting them, but he doesn't give a specific timetable, right? He says, if the Lord wills and He's experienced uh, wanting to go somewhere for his missionary journey, but not being able to go before. So he's more tentative as he says this. But he does say he has definite plans to come. He will come soon. And when he comes, he says in verses 19 to 20, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. This is awesome, right? The word uh, arrogant uh, here is the exact same word that was translated earlier as puffed up, right? And the word talk here is the same word that was translated in the preceding chapters as word. So in 117, Paul said that he intentionally did not preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And similarly, in chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, Paul said, his speech and his message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul's using the same concepts here, because the puffed-up Corinthian believers were boasting in their worldly wisdom and word of eloquence, and then, but Paul warns them that when he visits them, he will test not their word, 
but their power. Because God's kingdom doesn't consist in word, but power. And that those previous references to the word power helps us understand that Paul is here referring to the power that is associated with the cross of Christ. In chapter 118, he said, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? So Paul's contrasting the Corinthians' word of worldly wisdom with the word of the cross, which is the power of God. And so what he's saying here is that the power to save does not lie in persuasive rhetoric or philosophical fluency. It lies in the crucified Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the proof of this power is in the Corinthians themselves because Paul came and simply preached that gospel and the Corinthians converted. They came to faith in the Lord and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, they were possessed many spiritual gifts that were causing some problems in their midst. So they themselves were proof of the fact that power lay in the cross of Christ. And so Paul's just, I mean, taking them to task here. He's saying he's so confident, and I love that confidence in the gospel that he has. Look at it. He's not afraid of his impending confrontation with these Corinthians instigators, even though they're they're probably experts in Greek rhetoric and philosophical uh, writings and sophistry, but even though all, they have all of that, Paul's not worried one bit about them. He's not worried that they would, he would be overpowered by them because he's so certain of the powerful manifestation of the gospel itself, that that will be his vote of confidence when he comes. Paul's confident that the puffed-up Corinthians' eloquence will not produce gospel fruit, that it will not lead to transformation of people's lives, and it will not lead to the filling of the Holy Spirit and the the distribution of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I hope all of us can have that confidence in the gospel. Because the gospel is not a gimmick, right? It's not a fad, right? It's just... As we should strive, we should strive to make the gospel the main thing in our ministry, not because of our theological or denominational commitments or traditions, but because that's what Apostle Paul did, because that's what Scripture itself enjoins. And if we don't have this confidence in the gospel, we will be hesitant to share the gospel. If we doubt its power to save and transform people's lives, then we will be tentative and reluctant witnesses. It's only when we share Paul's confidence in the power of the gospel to change people that seem to be totally beyond saving, that's when we be bold witnesses. That's when we will be effective evangelists. And in the conclusion of his appeal in verse 21, Paul resorts one more time to the father-children analogy that he used. And he says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with the rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? The rod is a figurative representation of fatherly discipline, and the spirit of gentleness is an expression of fatherly love, right? And so they're both expressions of fatherly care. But whether he comes with the rod or with the spirit of gentleness will be determined by the Corinthians' behavior. Will they change their ways? Will they reform their ways? And will they repent? And that last verse shows clearly that for Paul, uh, the, the Christian life, there was no alternative but the life that reflects the suffering servanthood of Christ. Christ has sanctioned no other type of Christian life and ministry, and that's why even if it takes a rod, Paul will correct them, he says. 
because they were living in a way that's contrary to the cross. The path that Jesus took to his glory, his ascension and his, his, seating, his sitting down and ruling at the Father's right hand, the path that he took to that glory was the path of the cross. And it's the same for every single Christian. We, the path to glory for us is path to, through the cross. And look at the prophecy in Isaiah of how it describes our Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53. And please don't take this passage for granted just because it's so familiar and then tune me out as I'm reading it. Okay, listen to it. Actually, listen to the words that the author uses to describe it. He says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's through the anguish of his soul that the Lord Jesus found satisfaction in redeeming his people. It's through his despisement, his affliction, grief, sorrow, and slaughter that our Lord Jesus saved us. Do you desire to be wealthy, powerful, beautiful? If that's your goal in your Christian life, you have chosen the wrong path. Even the rich and famous Christians that you hear on podcasts or at conferences, if they are faithful to the Lord, they experience sorrows and griefs that that we know not of, that we know not of. Every path of the, the path toward glory for every single Christian is the path of the cross. And that's why Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then I want to dissuade you from following Jesus unless you're willing to pick up your cross, pick up his cross and follow him. Why then should we want to be a Christian if that's what Christian life entails? Because what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Because as Christians, we believe that this momentary suffering that we have in this life prepares us for the eternal weight of glory. Because we would rather be a suffering servant of our Lord Jesus than be insufferable kings in this world. Because we'd rather be the scum and refuse of this world with Christ than be the jewel of this world without Christ. That's why. 
because Christ is worth it all. And if you are already a follower of Christ, then let this be a warning and an encouragement to you. Because if you start to feel home in this world, if you start to feel comfortable in this world, then you're losing touch with your true home in heaven. But if you are treated like dirt in this world, remember what Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When we are ridiculed for our faith in academia or in our workplaces, when we're caricatured as ignorant, as regressive bigots, when Christians in Muslim countries and Buddhist countries and Hindu countries are persecuted, they're martyred for their faith, when they have to go underground to proclaim a prohibited gospel. And in many smaller ways, when we in each of our own lives make small sacrifices and endure suffering to advance the gospel, when we serve the church, though it's hard and difficult at times, when the church comes together to serve a brother and sister that's getting married, even though it's a lot of work and you're all exhausted on Sunday morning, when we serve the church and when we forego earthly pleasures, earthly riches, so that we can be more generous and give sacrificially to others and toward God's mission, when we take difficult and thankless jobs like many of you have to stay here so we can minister, be a part of a church plant, to be missionaries here, when you're working those jobs even though uh, you don't want to because so that you can put food on the table for your family. When you are daily, you have your hands full with dirty diapers and dirty clothes and dirty dishes so you can serve your family. When someone hurts you in the church or uses harsh words or snubs you and you cover that with love and forgiveness when you overcome your own fears and anxieties to share the gospel with your unbelieving neighbors. In a hundred little ways, when we deny ourselves each day for the sake of Christ, we're imitating the suffering servanthood of Christ. And as such, we become pictures, representations of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the watching world. So take heart today if you're a believer. Be encouraged today. And Make it your aim today to reflect the suffering servanthood of Christ. Let's pray together. God, only those who know you and say this, that Lord Jesus, you are worth it all that you are more precious than silver or gold. That you are more to be desired than anything that this world has to offer. Lord, we believe that with all our hearts. Help us more and more to live with that reality so that we can be faithful representations of you, the suffering servant. And we pray, Lord, that you, uh, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you yet, that you would save, that you would bring true conviction of sin, that you would exalt your son in our sight, 
so that we pursue him at all costs. Do that in our midst today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.